This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we are discussing Nicholas Canny's new book, Imagining Ireland's Pasts, Early Modern Ireland Through the Centuries, recently published with Oxford University Press. Professor Canny is Emeritus Professor at the National University of Ireland, Galway, and he has a very influential publishing career spanning the early 1970s until today. Um, he completed his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and has gone on to author or edit 11 books and over 70 published papers. In the year 2000, he was the founding director of the Moore Institute for Research in the Humanities and Social Sciences at the National University of Ireland Galway, serving there as director until 2011. He was president of the Royal Irish Academy from 2008 to 2011, uh, served as a member of the Scientific Council of the European Research Council from 2011 to 2016, and is also a member of the American Philosophical Society. Professor Kenny, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, so you're obviously a very well-known historian um, and, and known, I think, primarily for your work on Ireland and its place within the Atlantic world with something of an emphasis on economics and politics. Now you've switched to writing what seems like more of an intellectual history or a, a history of histories. So why did you make that switch? Uh, well, when I wrote my last major monograph in 2001 called Making Ireland British, it had taken me a quarter of a century of archival research in order to bring it to completion. So now that I'm reaching the end of my career, I recognize that I would never be able to do another major piece of archival re- research of that kind. Besides that, I don't like repeating what I have said, so that while there were facets of what I had done before that I might have re-looked at, that I would really be just uh, working over material that I had worked at previously. And when I, I publish, I always like to have something new to say. Another factor was that uh, those of us who were trained as historians in Ireland in the early part of my career as an undergraduate in the 1960s, we were led to believe that the world, that is the world of historical investigation, more or less began in the 1930s uh, with the establishment of 
uh, what was described as academic history, that anything that had been written before that was hardly worth looking at. And that as I proceeded with my research, I frequently had to go back, especially to 19th century works, because many of the 19th century authors had worked in material which has since been destroyed. But as I looked at their works, I found they were quite interesting. They were pursuing interesting debates. They were seriously engaged with their subject, and they were controversies which they uh, fought about, but nonetheless used evidence in order to support their various arguments. So I thought this was worth looking at more seriously. Uh, As I moved back into the 18th, 17th, and then into the 16th century, I found the debates were happening interesting as well. So that in that sense, I thought that this was a subject uh, which was worthy of study in its own right. Besides that, I discovered that comparing Irish historiography with the historiography of other European countries, that it appeared that there was a greater difficulty among Irish historians at arriving at an agreed narrative than there was in the case of other countries. I'm not saying that that an agreed narrative is necessarily a good thing, but nonetheless, in the case of Irish historians, there were always polar opposite interpretations. And I wanted to try and explain what was different about Ireland that explained this particular uh, polarization of views. So when you talk about that, that problem of like coming up with a shared narrative, is that a product of, of sectarian divides? Is it a product of linguistic divides? Uh, yes, it's, a, it's certainly a product of, of denominational divide uh, in that frequently, but not always, it was Protestant versus Catholic interpretations. Uh, but that, that occurred in most European countries, particularly for 16th and 17th century historiography, that you had Protestant and Catholic authors relating to the history of France, for example, and they could never agree. Uh, so that, but as well as that, when you look in the 19th century in Irish historiography, you find that there are Catholics and Protestants on both sides. You have Protestant nationalists and you have Catholic unionists. So that in that sense, denomination factor is not the only factor. Another factor is the fact that the population of the country was made up of disparate elements who had come into the country at different times. There were those of Gaelic ancestry who believed themselves to be the indigenous population of the country. Those who came in with the Anglo-Norman conquest of the 12th century and their descendants, and those who came into the country through the plantation process of the 16th and 17th centuries. That these it's not only that these were all different peoples, but each of them had systems of sustaining historical memory that were persistent over the course of time. So I think the factor that makes the Irish case so different from other countries is this ability of people of different ethnic backgrounds to sustain memory systems that over centuries. So there's a kind of a question here about I think temporality where like you're writing from the 21st century in some ways, like looking back to what history, what Irish historiography looked like in the 1960s, which itself then is linked to developments in the 1930s and always looking back to the 16th century. And yet across a lot of your book, there's also this character from the 12th century, Geraldus Cambrensis, who seems to have this incredible influence. And I'm kind of curious why, why he proved so influential. 
Uh, yeah, Geraldus Cambrensis or Gerald of Wales, if you want to uh, translate him into English, uh, came to Ireland from Wales in the, at the time of the Anglo-Norman conquest. And that he wrote two important books. Uh, one uh, describing the topography of Ireland, which is really an anthropological study, and that he is uh, I, describing what we might now describe as the indigenous population of the country, the population of the country that were there at the point that he arrived. And he describes these as a barbaric people, and that therefore there was a justification for the Anglo-Norman intervention in the country to bring uh, Christianity and civility into the country. This, had been, this having been justified by a papal bull called the Bull Laudabiliter, which was issued by the Pope in 1154, encouraging King Henry II of England to intervene in Ireland in order to introduce religious reform there. So that he had wrote this very negative, that is, Gerald of Wales wrote, wrote this very negative portrayal of the Irish population in order to justify uh, the English involvement in the country at that particular juncture. And his second book on the conquest of Ireland itself is describing how the conquest took place. Now that each of these two books was sustained uh, by the population of English descent in the country who remained a permanent presence from the 12th century forward. That this was, as they saw it, the justification for them being in the country and for them continuing and persisting with the civilizing mission which had justified English involvement in the country in the first instance. So that in that sense, what had been written in the 12th century continues to be sustained uh, right down to the 16th century by this people of English descent. Then in the 16th century itself, you find that the new English people, people for the most part in the later part of the 16th century were Protestant who came into Ireland, also took an interest in what Gerald of Wales had said. And that they translate some of that into English and sometimes they publish, particularly his topography is published in continental Europe. So that in that sense, there is a new relevance to the debate as new editions are made available in the 16th century. They are now being used by a different English segment to justify their involvement in the country. And they are now arguing not only was the Gaelic population barbaric as it had been in the 12th century, and this barbarism had persisted to the 16th and into the 17th century. But they are arguing that the people of English descent, that is the people who previously had fostered the writings of Gerald of Wales, that these people had degenerated and had become as barbaric or more barbaric than the Gaelic population who had preceded their ancestors in the country. So that in that sense, there was now a civilizing mission uh, which involved civilizing all the populations of Ireland, even those of English descent. Now, a third factor is that uh, as a consequence of the success of English military involvement in Ireland in the 16th century, that a large number of Irish people including a significant number of Irish Catholic clergy, 
find their way to the continent of Europe. And they become, and particularly the clergy, become involved in educational institutions. And they discovered that insofar as their hosts knew anything of Ireland, it was as a consequence of the writing of Gerald of Wales, because editions of these had been prepared and distributed in the continent in the 16th and indeed even into the 17th century. And as a consequence of that, they found that they found themselves in order to uh, justify their own existence, they found themselves having to refute the arguments of Gerald of Wales, which had been written as early as the 12th century. So in that sense, that this particular text continues to be argued about through the 16th century and into the 17th century. And so are there other ways in which, um, if you want to call them the original like Gaelic-Irish um, are, are learning about all of this kind of history writing? Like, how else can they learn what the, either the Anglo-Normans or the, the 16th century English arrivals um, are saying about them? It's very difficult to know. Previous to the middle of the 16th century, it's difficult to know what people of, what the, the literate elements in Gaelic-Irish society knew of what was being said about them by people of English descent or by indeed by English people who came into the country from outside in the 16th century itself. Uh, very much Irish society down to the middle of the 16th century was very much a localized society. And what was written within the Gaelic communities was about what was happening within particular lordships or by conflict with neighboring lordships rather than a discussing a, any debate with the people of English descent in the country, other than the fact that recognizing that these people, through their actions, frequently led attacks upon them. So that in that sense, they recognized people of English origin in the country as a threatening presence, but they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily familiar with what Gerald of Wales had said about them. But this changes as you move into the later 16th and into the 17th century because of the significant number of Irish people, particularly Irish clergy, who went to the continent, attended the continental seminaries, became familiar with the literature about Ireland that was disseminated on the continent, and became familiar with literature in the English language as well as in the Irish language. So that through uh, Gaelic-Irish, through English, and through what is written in Latin, that there is a recognition of the various range of debates that were taking place. So that in that sense, continental contact brings all elements of the country, makes them all familiar with the debates which are taking place. You also find in the 17th century that many of the Protestant clergy in Ireland who were interested in finding out more historically about the indigenous population of Ireland and how Ireland had been Christianized by St. Patrick, for example, that they engaged in correspondence with their Catholic counterparts, even though they were opposed to each other uh, in the battle for souls, nonetheless, in the effort to discover what had taken place and how Ireland had been Christianized in the first instance by St. Patrick, they were in, willing to engage in conversation one with the other. So that through that contact as well, that the English settler population in the country became familiar with what Is Matthew, so there's a slight like echo or something? 
If, if the sign is done now. We're, we're... <laughs> okay, it's back now. So I'll, I'll just maybe go to another question. So there's obviously a big like macro level history here, um, but I wonder if I could just focus in on some of the more kind of specific moments, specific episodes that, that feature in your book. Um, you no, say I'm... at one point that, that Henry Sidney, um, who, who's governor of Ireland at various points, from 1565 to 1578, that he's actually someone who encourages a lot of the writing of histories of this period. So why was he so interested in history writing? And how much did he see history and governance as being overlapping activities in Ireland? Yeah, um, Henry Sidney himself doesn't come from a particularly affluent black background, but he's extremely well connected and which could certainly be regarded as a Renaissance man. His father had been the principal tutor of Edward VI, and Sidney himself was raised with the king, the young king at court. And he, as he says himself, the king died in his arms. So then in that sense, he was very much associated with court circles, initially the court of Edward VI, and afterwards uh, Edward's half-sister, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, but as well as that, he's well-connected through marriage, in that one of his sisters marries uh, the Earl of Leicester, and then he has another sister married to the Earl of Sussex. And that all of these people have high social standing, uh, who saw themselves as being educated men uh, with broad visions, believed that they had a responsibility to, to cultivate writers of all kinds, poets, but also historians. History was regarded as beneficial, uh, first of all, because people were interested in knowing the origin of themselves and the origin of other peoples, that antiquarianism was a very important element of this. How did, where did people come from? How did different people happen to be residing in different countries at different times? That, that's a question of universal interest. But as well as that, from the more pragmatic point of view, there was a belief that if you studied what had happened in the past, you could learn lessons that could be applied in the present. So Sydney was particularly concerned about such matters. He, for example, is associated with the establishment of Reginald's Tower in Dublin Castle, which was the beginning of an Irish national archive. He wanted to preserve what written records existed from English government in the country in previous centuries. He also commissions the printing of all statutes passed by the Irish Parliament up to that period of time, recognizing that this would be an important reference book which any person in government should have access to. So therefore, he also commissioned the writing of histories and that he invited uh, Richard Stenehurst, who was uh, from the Pale itself, a, a person of English ancestry in Ireland who had been educated in Oxford. He encourages him to write histories, but he also encourages a, a, a humanist from England to come and visit Ireland and to study Ireland's history and to write about it, recognizing that all of this is going to be beneficial to himself as an educational instrument, but also perhaps also recognizing that when you patronize authors, that they write flattering comments about yourself and that that will be read by other peoples. But later in his career, uh, when Sidney gravitates towards the more extreme Protestant position in English society. Uh, he also becomes more interested in providential history, which was favored 
by Protestant authors, that is, histories which would narrate the involvement of God in determining the outcome of human affairs. Uh, so that in that, in that context, uh, Derrick's The Image of Ireland was very much written uh, under the patronage of Sydney. And anybody who looks at Derrick's Image of Ireland will see that the woodcuts which are there are almost all about Sydney's involvement in Ireland. This was a piece of propaganda glorifying the involvement of Sydney himself in Irish affairs, so that in that sense, history could be used very much to glorify himself. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's this question then of, of, of sort of people are interested in history because of the question of origins, which then becomes about kind of claims to ownership. Um, <clears throat> and there, there's one particular um, historian you talk about, Philip O'Sullivan Bayer, who in, in 1621, he writes a book called Historia Ibernia Compendium, in which he claims that the Gaelic Irish have a shared heritage with the Spanish um, because of a supposed shared genetic heritage as, as Milesians. And I, I'm curious as to how you understand claims like that. It, it seems on the one hand that it's almost like a, a very old medieval claim about, um, about the origins of the, of the Gaelic Irish. It seems also to be a kind of modern sense of identity that's almost rooted in, in biology and genetics. And yet I also assume that it's just kind of Catholic claim about the, you know, the, Irish, the Gaelic Irish and the Spanish are Catholics, and so they must have some kind of shared heritage. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're, they have a shared heritage merely because they're Catholic, but you're quite correct in saying that uh, writers everywhere in Europe were interested in knowing how, where the different populations of Europe had come from. Uh, the belief that the barbaric invasions had occurred, that the Roman Empire had been overthrown, and that the peoples of Northern Europe poured themselves down into what previously had been the Roman Empire, and that people in Italy and in Spain and in France were interested in knowing where the populations of that country had originally come from. The same debate had stemmed over into Ireland, even though Ireland had not been subject to the barbaric invasions, but nonetheless, the question of where had the population of Ireland come from. There were some who said they came from Africa. This was in medieval times. Some who said they came from Spain. And then as you move into the 16th century, the English argument is very much that they are Scythians, that they came from around the Caspian Sea, and that these were the most barbaric people that had been ever known, that they were an unsettled population. So that in that sense, the question of origin was a relevant question. Now, from Sullivan Bear's point of view, he himself was an Irish exile. His family had been destroyed in the course of warfare in the end of the 16th century and had found refuge in Spain. And there, had, there was a large Irish migration uh, from Ireland and particularly from Munster and then later from Ulster into Spain, concentrating on the town of La Coruña, which was the principal reception point. The, the, the nearest crossing point by water from Ireland into Spain. As these people found their way into Spain, they were going there because Spain had provided the Irish with military assistance against the English during the course of the 16th century. So that in that sense, it was strategic from their point of view to claim to be of Spanish ancestry because this gave Spain some obligation to provide them with military support. From the point of view of O'Sullivan Bear as an exile, he wanted to encourage the war party in Spain, wanted to re-engage militarily in conflict with England. There had been peace between England and Spain since 1604. So he would want a war 
again with a view to uh, recovering what had been lost in Ireland. He's in exile, hoping to return. But another factor was that at the juncture when these thousands of Irish found their way into Spain, the Spain was becoming a society was very conscious about who was civil, who was Christian, and who was an appropriate person to be living in Spanish society. This is at the point when Jews were being expelled from Spain and when the Moorish population, the Moriscos, thousands of them were expelled from Spain. So that in that sense, there were very strict measures of what it was to be a civilized person. So that in that particular environment, it was very wise to be contending that you were of Spanish descent, because if you could claim Spanish origins, that gave you immediate admission to being treated as equals when you were immigrants in a society which was generally speaking dubious about those who didn't conform to norms of that society. So would it be crude then to place all of this into a kind of a history of race and say this is this is part of what will become maybe by the 18th or 19th century what, or, or even what we today would call race or is, it, is this too kind of historically specific? It was all of these were kind of what, if you want to describe them as anthropology, this was as far as anthropology went in the 16th and 17th century. It becomes different in the 19th century, particularly with the introduction of social Darwinism, which gives a kind of a, a laboratory scientific justification for the categorization of people as it had been done previously. Whereas up to this point, in the 16th and 17th century, it was origin which, which could be used as the scientific evidence of how people should be treated and accepted or rejected. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the people you talk about in your book are um, somewhat obscure, um, yeah. or, or maybe at best they're, they're, they're known to 16th and 17th century historians, but not um, much else. And yet then there's a character like Jeffrey Keating who seems to have... Um, much more of a kind of a cachet in Irish studies. He's a better known figure in many ways. So how does he fit into this larger history that you're telling here? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I do mention Geoffrey Keeney, but I mentioned Geoffrey Keeney relatively, I think I've only five or six pages devoted to him. Uh, and the reason that I give him brief treatment uh, is first of all, I am writing about people who wrote about the 16th and 17th centuries. Whereas Geoffrey Keating, uh, for those who don't know, he was a clergyman who had been raised in the continent, educated in the continent, and then returned and ministered in the southern part of Munster uh, in the first half of the 17th century. Uh, and then he writes a history of Ireland. But his history of Ireland is a history of, of pre-Norman Ireland rather than a history of his own time. So that in that sense, he's not directly relevant uh, to what I'm dealing with and that he doesn't write about the 16th and 17th centuries themselves. He writes about earlier periods of time. And I uh, suppose another reason why I can treat him fairly briefly is that Bernadette Cunningham has in recent mm-hmm. years written a comprehensive study of Geoffrey Keating. So in that sense, what I write about him is very much summarizing what she has done. Sure. But nonetheless, I do uh, have to refer to him. Uh, first of all, because uh, I write about him in the context of another author who probably isn't as well known in the 21st century, but who was probably better known in the 17th century, that is a man called David Roth, 
or who became Bishop of Ossory after he returned to Ireland in 1618, who, like Keating, had been educated in a seminary in continental Europe, and who wrote histories of a history, a detailed history of Ireland, uh, not going into the early period as much as Keating does, but the two authors both of them clerics, both of them functioning within Irish society, which is dominated by a Protestant government, but attempting to function in Irish society in the first half of the 17th century. And their accounts are very much in agreement one with the other. First of all, they both agree that the Irish, all elements of the Irish population were a civil people. They argued that Irish civility had developed independently of that of ancient Rome and that therefore it didn't require the Norman conquest of Ireland in the 12th century to bring what was Roman civilization into Ireland, because the, 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 the pre-Norman population had independently of Rome developed a civilization of their own. So that when the Norman conquest occurs, it is bringing together two civil peoples. Uh, at least that's the point that Roth was arguing. Uh, Keating looks at this juncture the Norman conquest of Ireland more closely, and that both Roth and Keating are of Anglo-Norman descent, and that they would have traced their ancestry back to the 12th century. But Keating contends that the Norman conquest of Ireland was a pretty uh, robust affair, and that the earlier conquerors were a pretty loutish lot who were interested in their own a well-being and seizing what they could. They were a rapacious group of people uh, rather than a civil population. But he, he argues then that because of their uh, loutishness, effectively they had not been blessed by God with having descendants of their own. So that these early conquerors are not the ancestors of himself and the other people of English ancestry in the country, that effectively these had not been blessed by God with progeny, and that Henry II had come into Ireland in 1172 to discipline these, to recall some of them, and that the, the ancestors of the English population in the country were the descendants of those who had come into Ireland following Henry II's invasion of the country. These were more gentle people interested in farming the land and that therefore there was then emerging of two civil populations. So that both Roth and, and Keating are arguing that these two populations of Ireland, both of them were civil, both upheld Christianity, and that they were a more Christian people than subsequent English people who came into the country in succeeding centuries, that they tended to suggest that during the medieval centuries that England was drifting away from Rome until eventually in the 16th century, in the reign of Henry VIII, it breaks the connection with Rome completely. So that it was these two earlier populations who are the upholders of both civility and Christianity in the country. This argument uh, can be sustained to some degree uh, by what I term as a Freudian exercise in active forgetfulness, and that they want to ignore completely the conflict between the two populations, English and, and Anglo-Norman, that had been persistent over the course of the 16th century. And they want to pre present these as a single 
Christian people who were united against the Protestant population who came in at the time of the Reformation. And that language, he uses the term Erenig, a common term, Irish people, to describe the people of Anglo-Norman descent and those of Gaelic origin. So that to that degree, the two of them are writing what might be regarded as a type of uh, national origin uh, of the Catholic population of the country, establishing Catholicism as the defining characteristic of what it is to be Irish. So it's, they're writing national histories, and yet it also seems even more than that that they're writing nationalist histories, or sort of proto-nationalist almost. I would say to be more important to describe it as denominational history, okay, that they okay. were use denomination as a measuring factor, regardless of whether you were English speaker or an Irish speaker or of Gaelic origin or of English origin, your Catholicism was the defining factor that made you an Irish person. Sure. So if we can maybe jump ahead a little bit then to the 18th century, what does an Enlightenment history of Ireland look like? Because you, you talk a lot about, about that kind of genre of history writing. Yeah, well, much I'm arguing the fact that much of what was written in the 16th and 17th centuries was providential, and that uh, the authors, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, when it suits their purpose, it was always divine intervention that determined the course of events. Whereas when you get into the 18th century, there are more authors, uh, some of them aristocratic authors, and some of them are enlightenment authors who believe that it was uh, people themselves that, that determined their destiny, and that it was human intelligence, effectively, that shaped the course of events. That in, in Enlightenment history was, for the most part, written in France, in Scotland, and in continental Europe, in that Enlightenment history proceeded from the assumption that civilization was first developed in ancient Rome, that the Romans were the first who consciously recognized that humans could control their own destinies, and that Enlightenment authors generally believed that people could be in control of events other than the fact that when some within their societies were driven by religious zeal. So that religious zeal and rationalism were the two factors which were antagonistic to to each other. So that when you have disruptions in society, such as you have during the French wars of religion, that is when zeal takes over. The same would have been said of the English Civil War, that zealous excessively zealous Protestants gain control of the course of political events and drive people away from uh, the rational course which would lead to the improvement of humanity generally and lead to uh, atrocities associated with religious zeal. So that this type of writing uh, didn't uh, gain much ground in Ireland itself, but nonetheless, Catholics of educated background believed that it could serve their purpose because they contended. Now you are talking about Catholics who had professional aspirations or Catholics who had retained land in the country and who want to be accepted as subjects under the crown and who are willing to recognize the Hanoverians as being their legitimate rulers and who are willing to turn their a blind eye to the fact 
that many of their kinsmen of an earlier generation had been forced into exile because of the political positions that had been adopted. So that these Catholics in Ireland in the 18th century who want to be accepted as equals with their Protestant counterparts in the country believed that if there were to be an Enlightenment history, it would show that the imposition of penal laws upon them was an irrational measure, that this was a measure which had no place in a Europe which was becoming increasingly rational. So therefore, they favor the writing of enlightened history in the belief that this would sustain their position and enable them to escape from the disabilities under which they were suffering because of the law. The problem was, who would write such a history? And who would, having written it, who would accept such a history? So there was a debate among themselves about commissioning somebody to write an enlightened history of Ireland. And they had a general understanding in their minds as to what shape such an enlightened history should take. Uh, O'Connor, for example, that is O'Connor of Ballinagar, who from County Roscommon, who was himself a man of the Enlightenment, he had been writing about early Ireland, Ireland before the Norman conquest of the country, to show what a civilized place it was. So that in that sense, those who were now encouraging an enlightened history believed that it would draw attention to the civil conditions that had been obtained in Ireland before the Norman conquest had occurred. Uh, in other words, it, it didn't require a conquest from England to bring civility into the country. Uh, they would have wanted to point out that the rebelliousness of the Irish in the 16th and 17th century, of which much had been made by their Protestant opposite numbers, that this had occurred because of the greed of English settlers in the country or because of the zealous ambitions of parliamentarians in England to overthrow Catholics in Ireland and to seize their property, that such factors had driven Irish people into rebellion. So that the Irish were rebellious, not because they were, a, by definition or by character, a, a, a truculent people. It was because they were being treated unfairly and that therefore they were forced to defend themselves. And insofar as there were zealots in the country, it was those who came in who were attempting to seize their lands or those who came in to suppress them, particularly at the time of the Cromwellian confiscation of the country. And if you were to follow that line of argument, then those who had survived the 17th century had been treated unfairly at, at the time of the Williamite settlement in the country, which supposedly was a rational settlement, but which was irrational as they saw it because it had introduced the penal laws, introduced penalties against Catholics, prohibiting them from enjoying the full rights of citizenship. So this is the kind of history that they would have wanted written. The problem was in getting somebody, commissioning somebody to write it. And Edmund Burke, who himself had, was Irish in origin, a Protestant in religion, but had many Catholic relatives within Ireland itself, and politically influential in England, was one of their advisors. And Burke advised them that if they wanted such a history written, it would have to be written by a Protestant if it was to be accepted by the government authorities in England who were really the population that they were trying to impress. 
And there, the problem that arose that they did identify a Protestant clergyman named Leland, who did write a lengthy philosophical history of Ireland in the 18th century. Uh, he does so without, con he knows what is expected of him. But when he sat down to write it, it, it effectively conforms with the old Protestant narrative of events, that it requires English conquest to bring civility into the country, that the Irish engage in rebellion in the 16th century and in the 17th century, and particularly in 1641, because they were a perverse people who had been persuaded to take the actions that they did by a superstitious clergy, and that therefore there could be no uh, releasing them from the inabilities under which they suffered unless they conformed to the Protestant faith. So in that sense, the experiment at attempting to write an Enlightenment history didn't lead to the outcome uh, that Catholics, that is the Catholics within Ireland expected. Another factor while, why their expectations didn't lead to anything much anyhow is that because at the same time that they were encouraging the writing of such a history. The widespread throughout Ireland were in the Irish language was a vernacular history, which gave a different narrative of events, which was more in keeping with what Philip O'Sullivan Baird had written in the 17th century. And as well as that, there was a history by a man called Hugh Riley, which had been written in exile after the Williamite confiscation of the country. This was a Jacobite history, effectively was saying that an injustice had been done and that the injustice could never be resolved until the Cromwellian confiscation of the country had been reversed. That these histories enjoyed enormous popularity within Ireland. So that while you had this narrow group of people arguing, we want a, an enlightened history, an enlightened history will show that we are a deserving people. It was quite clear that such arguments were not generally accepted within the Catholic, the ranks of the Catholic population in the country, and even less among Catholic exiles on the continent of Europe. Mm -hmm. So your book more or less ends um, in the 1930s, but I'm wondering, do you see any ways in which all of these different ways of historical thinking still exert an influence in Irish history writing or cast any kind of shadows over contemporary historians? Uh, yes, they do. I mean, I... I, I my, I think I, I, I stopped largely in the 1930s, but I do come down to the 1950s and to some degree. And that I'm arguing that if you want to say real academic history of the early modern period, it begins to be written in the 1950s because historians begin to address problems rather than attempting to write a grand narrative. And that they, in addressing problems, they are contextualizing their problems in broader contexts. They're seeing Irish events in the context of what's happening in other countries in Europe at the time, or what's happening in Britain, or what's happening in the broader Atlantic world. And they're, they're not so much interested in writing the grand narrative, which is what had concerned uh, most people in earlier centuries. Uh, but uh, while, and in that sense, if I had begun to write about what was written after 1950s, I would have been writing debates between historians, because historians from the 1950s or 1960s onwards, uh, writing of Ireland in the early modern period, are really writing for each other and writing. 
All of the authors in previous centuries believed that they were addressing a broad public. Uh, so that in that sense, uh, historians begin to write for other historians and that while such a book would be worthy in itself, uh, it's not, not what I was particularly interested in doing. But while I say this, that that doesn't mean that the concern for the grand narrative is forgotten in Ireland. Uh, and it's even forgotten within academia in Ireland, because there are people in other academic disciplines in Ireland, particularly in literature departments and in social science departments, who believe that historians have become, quote unquote, revisionists, and that they have abandoned the effort to write the grand narratives, and that the grand narrative would be better written by people other than quote-unquote, professional historians. And so that you find many people in literature departments uh, and in geography departments and in social science departments who turn to the writing of Irish history as they believe that Irish history should be done. And the most prominent in this were those associated uh, with the Field Day movement, <laughs> in that the Field Day anthology, for example, which you would be familiar with, a, a mm -hmm. five-volume or a four-volume anthology of Irish writing, which was supplemented by a fifth of women's writing in Ireland. Effectively, what the people associate with Seamus Dean and his associates in, uh, with the, uh, the, 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 this particular movement, uh, they want to make good what they believe historians have abandoned and they believe, like many authors in the 19th century and in earlier centuries have done, that you can write legitimate history only if you have a legitimate archive. So that in writing, compiling the Field Day anthology, they are compiling the archive, which they believe that is necessary to sustain the grand narrative which they want written about Ireland. So that in that sense, the debates of earlier centuries it does persist into the 21st century, except that it doesn't persist necessarily among historians. It is historians versus people in other disciplines. Am I right in hearing a certain kind of note of skepticism about Field Day, or, or do you feel that what they're doing is good? I, I wouldn't say good or bad. I just say I found it interesting. Uh, but I, if I wanted to get into that particular debate, then I would have had to write a different book or another sure, sure. So. I'll apologize in advance, but I might end with a very grim question. Is this your last book? Uh, it's probably my last long book. I mean, it's over 400 pages and uh, Making Ireland British was even longer. Uh, what I'm engaged upon now is an edition of Spencer's view of the present state of Ireland. We're acquiring a proper annotated edition. And um, I, I, that's, that, that I believe is, that may be my next project, but I'm certainly writing papers as well, but writing another 400 page book, I don't think that's going to be in the agenda. Okay, well, that's all good to hear. Um... Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Uh, Nicholas, Nicholas Canny's book is out now with Oxford University Press. Um, it is over 400 pages, but it's definitely worth reading. Thank you so much. Thank you.